Well, this is the mid, we're, we're past the middle point, yeah? Today and tomorrow. And today's past the middle point. It's drawing near. Why don't we, um, why don't, why don't we pray together? Why don't everybody stand for a minute? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this time and this space in our lives to turn our full attention to you and to your word. Father, we've been uh, examining the issues of disciples this week. And it's our great desire, collectively, as, as a whole group of people here, we want to be, to properly be disciples of Jesus. I pray, Father, this week would remain, that it would be fruitful, that the things that are, at least some things that are said here in, in our time together would produce lasting fruit in our lives and for your purposes and for your kingdom. I ask you, Father, in Jesus' name, that you be present in this time together as we examine things in the scriptures and from the life of our Master and our Lord. We submit ourselves to him and we ask for your presence with us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> on Monday, we defined what a disciple is. Which is what? Access to your whole life. On Tuesday, we talked about hindrances to discipleship, and yesterday, we talked about tests make the disciple. In other words, don't be afraid of failure. Today, I want to talk about training for disciples. There's actually a, um, I think that there's a discernible pattern in the text of the scriptures that, um, that we can see how Jesus is working at disciples. So how I came about this topic and this discussion today is that I'm looking at how does if, if it's our job to be ready to be disciples, well, how is Jesus doing that with the people in his life? What is he doing with those people that are close to him? And how do we, how do we follow those examples? Like, the scriptures aren't just a history lesson. It's not just the things that happened. It's patterns that are produced for us to look at, to learn from, and to emulate. And so what are the patterns about how Jesus makes these men and women in his life ready to do the things that happen in the next century the gospel spreads throughout the known world and so so we go from 3 and 12 and 70 and 120 and 3000 and the known world that's 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 the reproduction rate the pattern at which the church is spreading in the first 100 years of the church's life and so there's something about the way that he starts and that he works with those three and with those 12 and with those 40 and with the 70 and with the 120 that, that we should be looking for. 
And so I want to examine the pattern of what it means to be trained as a disciple. And the pattern is this, essentially. The first stage, the first very difficult stage, is the call and response. And, you know, we've, we've focused a lot of our time and attention this week just on this phase of, of the process. It's a, it's a very difficult phase to get through. But then... What we see next of the people that come through here, then we move to instruction. And there's these little phrases that are easy to miss in the text. Uh, and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he, was when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. He leaves, there's specific instruction for for these people, for his intimates, for his disciples. Like, there's a public proclamation happening. That's one thing. But there's also this private instruction that happens almost behind closed doors. Same situation happens in a lot of the parables. Particularly, you can see it in Matthew 19 is another, like, repetition of this private instruction. Uh, the path, so he, he, he has this controversy with, with the Pharisees about, is it lawful to put away your wife for any cause? And he gives his teaching there. And then after, when they leave that public environment, he has this private instruction with the disciples. He says, do you know what, you, do you know what I mean? Do you, are, are you understanding what I'm talking about here? Same thing with the parable of the sowers, right? He gives the parable of the sowers. And then afterwards, he comes back to the disciples and he says, do you understand what I'm talking about? Do, do you get it? Let me tell you. I'm going to tell you what I'm talking about. And he gives them the, uh, the way to understand these things. Because they've earned that right through here. They came through the door. Okay, you're inside now. Now I want to instruct you. Now I want to teach you. And then from the instruction phase, he goes on to the modeling phase. So he calls them. They respond. He gives private instruction about how to understand the things that he's saying and doing. And then he models how they should act in the world. Now, this is where we're going to pick up some text. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8. In Luke 8, it begins with this expression in verse 1. It says, And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. They're like the, the little quiet peanut gallery behind him wherever he goes. Like he's doing his stuff and they're watching what happens. And then it says, um, certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary Magdalene, cast out the devils, and then he goes on and talks about all this stuff that happens as he's out doing all this. Flip over to chapter 9, and this is where we're going to actually focus our attention to the text. And that is... Application. Look at what the beginning of chapter 9 says. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure disease and sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So in chapter 8, he goes out with them following. In chapter 9, he says, okay, 
guys, now you go do what I just did. This is a pattern for how you should do discipleship. Like the pattern repeats over and over again. So Jesus calls the 12, they respond, he gives them instruction, he models what they should do, and then he tells them to do it. And in them doing it, they're supposed to go out and make a call and see who responds and give instruction and then model and then tell them to do it. And again and again and again. And this is the pattern that builds the church in the ancient world. Call response, instruction, modeling, application. That's the pattern. That's the pattern for the disciple. It's the pattern that you're supposed to go through, and it's the pattern that you're supposed to repeat and repeat and repeat. And, and it's, um, it's really important to understand. Uh, Finney gave a message at Kingdom Fellowship Weekend several years ago. Um, you know, Finney's a super smart guy. And, and he said, he, he made a claim in that message that the most poorly understood principle in the world was compound interest. Exponential growth is, is a phenomenon that is overwhelming in its power. And this exponential growth is how the church is supposed to work. Hey, we live in a basically dead church. I hate to break it to you. We're not doing a very good job. I, I've, I've dedicated my life to, to pursuing the kingdom, to planting churches, to doing all the work that I can, that I know how to do to cause the gospel to spread in America. I've been watching this for a long time. We are not doing a good job. We are, we are more like this. It's not working well. I, I, I talk to people about these issues all the time, and, and I have become kind of known as the urban evangelist, like the come live in the city guy, the come live in the city guy. And okay, I am, but it's not because I just like concrete. It's because I like people. It's because I'm watching what the church is supposed to do. I'm watching what she has been capable of doing in the past, and I'm seeing where, where, where is that? Why is that not happening among us? Where is the growth? The church in America, the church in the West, is almost dead. You are, in the, you are in the death throes of Western Christianity. The church in America and the church in the West is a sick old man in a bed that can barely breathe anymore, is about to drown in his own spit. He can't get up, he can't move, he can't do anything. The life is going out. And by and large, this pattern is not happening. We want to focus on writing books and having a million people on our YouTube channel and making some kind of statement in the world and having a big splash. And that's not where it happens. Where it happens, where this happens, where this goal actually comes to pass is when every one of us finds one or two people to work with and to practice our faith with and to be really serious about being disciples with and you do that for a pattern of time and then those two each go and find two people and those two each go find two people and when you do this with just a few successive iterations then you get exponential growth 
And Jesus is not stupid. Jesus is even smarter than Finney. He knows this pattern works. He knows that if, uh, if every one of his people would just grab a couple of people and teach them this pattern, call, response, instruction, model, apply. Call, response, instruction, model, apply. If we would do that with each other, if you could find two people, I, you say, well, well, who am I supposed to work with? Well, if you don't have them, find them. That's, not, that's your job. That's the part you're supposed to do. Find them. Maybe they're in your church. Maybe they're already Christians. Maybe they're the guy you buy gas from the gas station. Maybe they're the guy that works at Target. Maybe I don't know who they are. I don't know where they are. But I know that they're out there. And you've got to start finding them. That's, that's the pattern. And if we're not doing this, if you don't have a couple of people that you're working with, and I don't, this doesn't have to be this like, it doesn't have to be the I'm up here and you're down here. It doesn't have to be that kind of proposition. It can be us together. Like, me and you, man. Let's talk about the scriptures together. Let's pray together. Let's ask God to do something with us together. Hey, let's go out and see if we can find somebody to talk to you about the gospel together. Let's, me and you, buddy, the two of us, let's go. Th this pattern works. I know it works. I have confidence in this pattern. I don't have confidence in, in, in books and YouTube channels. It's not that they have, hey, listen, I'm, I'm very pro-media. I'm very pro-technology. I know that that's not always the most popular position in our churches, but I, I am very pro those things. I think there's a utility and a reason for doing those things for some people. But that's not how you grow the church. That's not what causes this. What causes this is each of us having a few people that we work with in our lives. A few, and they're not... In Jesus' life, these people are his friends. And you ought to have a couple of people that are your friends, that you work together with, that you, that you, that you experiment and explore and study and pray and work with. We'll look a little more at that. <clears throat> So, so he sends them out to do the same thing that he's done. And, and he sends them in an interesting way. He sent them to preach the, God, preach the kingdom of God. Okay, so they're, they're, they're doing a couple of things. This call that they have, this pattern that they're repeating. He wants them to preach the kingdom. He wants them to heal, and he wants them to cast out devils, or ha he gives them authority over devils. This is a very holistic approach. I think the reason for this is that here, this is, this is an appeal to people's minds. It's telling them things that they should listen to. This is an appeal to people's bodies, and this is an appeal to people's spirits. It's all-encompassing. It, it, it attaches everything. Mind, body, and spirit. The, the message that's going out, the, 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 the application that's happening, that's been modeled, is that all of these things are concerns for the, for the, for the movement 
to go forward. We have to address people's minds, we have to address their bodies, and we have to address their spirits. And there's been so much tension, like particularly there's been tension between these two things, but this gets wrapped up in it too. But this all mind or all body, the social gospel that's just about healthcare and making people's lives better and humanitarianism, hey, look, humanitarianism is important, and I have some very specific ideas, especially about humanitarianism in the developing world. I actually don't think that we should be, well, I'm not going to go down the private trail, sorry. <laughs> Minds and bodies are not in conflict. They both have to be the object of the gospel. We have to care about people's minds and we have to care about their bodies. We have to care about feeding people and we have to care about telling people. It's fine to go feed people. I, I tell people all the time, especially you know when people move into urban environments, they're worried about, like, what do I do with beggars? Like, how do, do I give money to people that are just going to be go blow it on a fifth of whiskey or go get high or whatever. Yes, you are supposed to. Can I just say that? Give them money. It's, it's, there's an intrinsic good to caring for the poor. It's not your job to figure out what to do with it. If you see somebody who needs food, just give them what they need. If somebody's asking you for a few bucks when you walk out of the grocery store, I mean, there, if you have time, it's perfectly appropriate to say, hey, can I go back in and buy you some groceries? I'd love to get you something. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying, don't ignore the need. And it's better to give a guy that walks up to you on the street and says, hey, man, you got a couple bucks. It's better to give him a couple bucks and not know where that couple bucks is going than to tell him no. As a Christian, that's the truth. Give to him that asketh thee. From him that will borrow thee, turn not thou away. You cannot avoid those people. Their bodies matter. It's an intrinsic good, all in and of itself, to care for needy people, to provide for their well-being. That's good no matter if nothing else happens. No matter if you don't talk to anybody, it's just good to care for humans because humans are the image of God and they live in a broken world and we need to help people. It's our job to do that. But it's not a complete like that, you haven't done your job. You're not absolved from your gospel responsibility. If you never say no to a bum that asks you for money, you haven't absolved your responsibility. You're not, you might be a good guy. You're a good human at that point, okay? Let's, let's put it in that category. You're a good human. But you haven't qualified as a good disciple yet. Because disciples creating ways to address the whole person. Everything that's involved. And I think... I, it's my observation that lately, at least in my world, this is the piece that's getting most the mo missed the most. I feel like there's a good way that the church has still of thinking about addressing people's minds and addressing their physical needs. But we're missing the spiritual piece in, in, in correcting people's lives, in providing spiritual answers. It's just really hard to see what's not seen. There's something about Jesus and the way that he approaches people when he says... I'm not like you. I don't consider the outside, but the inward man of the heart. And seeing what's happening inside of people's lives is hard to do. It requires discernment. It requires wisdom. It requires access. It requires some boldness. But there's, like, when we talked about the parable of the sower, you know, that first soil, that wayside soil, was the people who the Satan comes and snatches it away as soon as it's as soon as it's sown. And we need to learn to see that activity and head it off at the pass. We need to learn how to till that into good ground. We need to learn to see we the, the apostle says at one point we are not ignorant of his devices, but by and large we are ignorant of his devices. 
seeing where spiritual problems are what are affecting people in their relationships, in their marriages, in their, in their families, in their all kinds of places. There are spiritually rooted problems that are having outworking in people's physical lives, in their mental lives. There's a, uh, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say some things here. I, there's a mental health crisis in America right now. And I, I, I think that we as the church need to walk carefully in how we analyze this. There's, there's, this, there's these polarizing positions that the church has been over helping people's minds and spirits that's really, really gotten muddy. And the problem is, it can't be the case that so many people are so dependent on so many pharmaceutical drugs. That's, that's, I think that's, you can lay that in the middle of the table and say, this has to be true. Like, billions of pills are going out to Americans, to our friends and neighbors, every year. Billions of pills. And that seems excessive. But it seems like every time the church tries to address those needs, there's this knee-jerk reaction to rejecting science, to rejecting that there can be any problems that those things are addressing, to rejecting... and. And we just need to find a balanced way to look at these things with some insight and wisdom that's aided by, by God to help us see the difference between those things. Or that they're, they're combinations of things. That, that, um, that there's, there doesn't have to be... What I see God doing in here is tying all of these things together. And we always want to separate them. We always want to send them to their own categories. And this is all over here. And this is all over here. And this one is somewhere way, way over here. But, but this isn't right. They're supposed to be together. This is a whole person. And all of these are parts of him and her. All right, so he addresses the whole person. I, I, th I think I just asked more questions than I answered, but that's okay. We're going to move on. We'll have to work that out as we go. But look how he sends them. Take nothing for your journey, neither staves nor scrip, neither bread nor money, neither have two coats apiece, and whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide and thence depart. And wheresoever, whosoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Do you know that this order gets rescinded? This is a temporary order. Because later he says... If you don't got this stuff, take it with you. What's that about? It's about training is what it's about. He says, don't take anything with you. I don't want you to have a, I don't want you to rely on a single thing. This is training. It's training. It's God training his people. You know, it's, it's hard to train. It's difficult to train. Even at a very low level, it's difficult to train. It's hard to train for a job. It's hard to train for a sport. It's hard to train for health. It's hard to train for school, it's, if you want to study. It's hard to train. 
takes a lot of time and dedication and drive and energy. It's hard to train. And Jesus is putting a difficult training regimen together for his disciples. He says, I'm going to send you to do what I've done, and I don't want you to take anything with you. And I look at that list, and I'm like, okay, I get it, right? Like, don't take money, don't take food. You're going to be dependent on the people around you. God's going to provide for you, whatever. But you can't even take a stick. You can't even steady your feet. That's one, like, who can't take a stick, right? You don't even want us to walk, walk steady. I don't want you to lean on anything. It's just abundantly obvious his point here to me. I don't want you trusting in anything. You really have to go this alone. It's just me and you. That's the only thing you got for this journey. There's another pattern that emerges here for me. And we'll watch it play out in this text. I'm going to reveal my hand ahead of time. I think the reason that this is a temporary training protocol, because later he rescinds it, I think that there is something about scarcity that helps train us. Scarcity is valuable. Scarcity makes people creative and diligent. Scarcity causes you to assess what you actually have and don't have. Scarcity makes you plan ahead. Scarcity makes you think about things. Scarcity does a lot of things. I don't know if you have been very poor in your life. I have been very poor in my life. I mean, by American standards. What do I mean by that? Well, I remember a time when my early family, you know, we lived in a little trailer. Um, we had moved around a bunch. We had no money. We were having babies. Erica was hand washing diapers in a pail. We were using duct tape to hold those diapers together. We, we, we had hurricane lamps in the house, not because they were cool and trendy and we were hipsters, but because we couldn't afford electricity. I've been poor. I've been to the place where if I didn't grow food for my family, we weren't going to eat very well, where we have to find clothes. I've lived that way. And there's something about scarcity that creates thoughtfulness. Because if you don't think about how to move, you're going to end up in a pinch. Poor people know how to make things work. And this scarcity that Jesus is imposing on the disciples makes you think. It makes them think, like, how is this going to happen? I can imagine walking out from that meeting with Jesus and him saying, okay, I've given you authority over all this stuff. Leave everything here and go. And walking away and be like, man, what are we supposed to do? How's this going to work? The how's this going to work? That thought is what, is what circles around around their heads. And then they see things happening. And they, 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 they're not going to miss an opportunity, right? Okay, so if you leave that meeting with Jesus with your partner, and you're like, okay, Jesus said there's 12 of us. Go 12 different directions start talking to people. Do what I've done. You're not going to miss an opportunity, right? Like the second day in when you haven't eaten and you're not sure where water's coming from, you're going to be really friendly to the first people you come across, right? <laughs> hey, we haven't had anything to eat or drink. Could you help us out a little bit? 
it actually makes the disciples dependent on the people that they're going to. And that's a weird construct. I feel that a little bit in, my, in, in the gospel work that I've done. I feel a kind of dependency on the people that I'm talking to. And there's something, I think, that equalizes and balances that relationship. Instead of being all the, I'm the, I'm the teacher here and you're the would-be student and I've got to try to convince you to listen to me, there's much more reciprocity in this scarce version of sending out the, the 12. That there's some mutual interdependence, that he's trying to tie people together that, aren't even ha- that don't even have an association yet. See, scarcity in these stories with Jesus, it leads to faith. Because what happens then, if we just fast forward... Uh, in verse 10, and the apostles, when they were returned, told him all that they had done. It worked. Stuff happened. They didn't just die famished in a wilderness somewhere. They ran into people. They had conversations. Things happened. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. Sometimes they shook the dust off their feet. Sometimes they stayed in a place and they had conversations with people till dawn and drank coffee and talked about Jesus and whatever else they were doing. Scarcity led to faith. They were like, we had nothing and we saw God work. It it did things. It was just me and God. And I imagine, I imagine this meeting, like in, in verse 10, when they were returned, told him all they had done. I imagine this was like, and then this happened. And then, and then we thought, there's no way this is going to work. And then, and then somebody came in and everything worked out great. It was amazing all the stuff that happened. Because when you put your life into, into a place of scarcity for the gospel, Jesus talks about this in other places, right? He says, if anyone has forsakes houses and lands, mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters for my sake in the gospel, you'll find a hundredfold more in this life and a life to come. To make yourself scarce for the purposes of the kingdom creates experiences that increase your faith and that lead eventually to abundance. And I've gotten to where I'm scared of this word because of what the, what the, the name it and claim it people have done. It's almost like a bad word. But abundance isn't a bad word. Abundance is more than you need. And when you create abundance, when you have more than you need, it can flow out to other places and keep growing. And the intention of this pattern is that scarcity leads to faith, Well, we missed a step. Scarcity leads to faith, leads to divine involvement. Leads to abundance. You leave out, these guys leave that, that first meeting, and they got nothing with them, and they're like, okay, well, I guess we just have to trust Jesus. He knows who he's talking so far. We'll do this. And they go out. That's the faith. That activates their movement. They move forward. God starts to get involved in the things that they're doing, and they find out, hey, this works. It works better than I thought. Better, 
what usually happens in these sittings is that by the time you get to the to the second part of this chapter when you're telling the story it works much better than if you hadn't started with scarcity if you had started instead with planning it wouldn't have gone near so well The reason I'm, uh, I'm looking at these patterns in particular is that in both of these patterns, if you want to train as a disciple, the one thing that's not offered is a 401k plan, a retirement account, a safe place in the Hamptons. Security is not a part of this protocol. Safety is not a part of this protocol. Assurance, like I'm, I know exactly what's happening, when, where, and how, is not a part of the training of disciples. Scarcity is. Some desperation is. Faith is. God is. And eventually, I think, abundance is. But security is not on the list. The path of a disciple is not a sure path. It's not sure in the way that you're used to thinking of surety. It's not, it's not, um, it's not reasonable according to the metrics that we're used to using. <clears throat> it's also not easy. It makes me wonder, um, so this repetition and the circle and the cycle, I think if we think of, so when I think about the church, what I think about is that what God's doing in the church is that it seems like God in uh, a reckless kind of wisdom has decided that you and me and our brothers and sisters are the way that he's going to fix the world. We are the way that God is going to fix the world. The silence in the room, I feel that silence. I feel it inside. Me? Like, I'm... I'm supposed to fix the world. Not you, us. We are supposed to fix the world. And it's, it, 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 it's hard to keep that in the forefront of your mind. Like when you just have daily life and you go to work and you have family and you go to church and you do all the things that you do, it's just very easy to just become a normal person a normal person within a certain cultural context and to lose sight of what this is all about. And the, the training of a disciple is designed to make it so that we don't forget. He's supposed to be training us. There's supposed to be growth and movement and traction and something that's happening in our lives because we're supposed to remember that we are supposed to be the answer. We are supposed to be the solution to how this very, very broken world gets fixed.
there's a lot of ways to think about the work of the church. There's a lot of ways to think about why God has collected the disciples the way that he has and what his intentions are. You know, on one hand, the, the work of making disciples, like Charlton is talking about, one way that I use of thinking about that is that it's our job to find our lost brothers and sisters. And that's a good motivating purpose for me because like I think about what if my what if what if tomorrow <clears throat> I got a call that said, Hey Matthew, this is the police. Uh, nobody's heard from your sister in twenty four hours and we're worried she's missing. Um, can you please come and help us join a search party and go find your sister? We have the last known location and we gotta find her. I'd do whatever it takes. I'd go out and start hunting and looking and sending posts and putting up posters and flyers and whatever. So that's what I would do if my brother or my sister was missing. That's what we're supposed to do. You have brothers and sisters out here that are lost and you're supposed to find them. It's like that's the job. That's the thing that we're doing. The other thing is that when we find those people, we're fixing the world. We're fixing them in this very microcosm kind of way, but we're fixing them very holistically, very thoroughly. A disciple gets fixed in all the ways that are right. And it creates not just, it's not numbers. This isn't about numbers. It's not that we have one less person that's a heathen or one less person that's going to hell or one more on the equation on the side of some tally of who's going to heaven or whatever. No, that's not what this is. What it is when you make a disciple, when somebody else comes into the kingdom, is that you create this new like sphere of life and health. And that life and health brings life and health to the place where that life is. And that radiates and it magnifies and it, it, it grows. And this, this sphere of influence, this sphere of life and health, this is why, okay, this is why the principles of Jesus' teaching are so important. When the church becomes heretical, when the church loses track of what Jesus told her to be and to do, when the church fails in its doctrinal purity. That is not insignificant. That's not a head problem. It, it darkens the light that's supposed to be radiating from the disciples. Those little spheres all become a little bit darker. They all become a little less capable of doing what they're supposed to do. Take, for example, the teaching of non-resistance. Why is that so important? Well, lots of reasons. I preach for hours and hours on non-resistance. But one of the things, one of the reasons is because that what the disciples are doing through the cross, through bearing the cross, through using love to over overcome evil by 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 changing so in the old in the old way of doing things when we look at when we look at non-resistance in particular Moses has a prescription right eye for eye tooth for tooth that's not new to 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 the Jews Re retribution justice is not a new phenomenon that's people been doing that as old as the world is as old as humans have been Retributive justice has been a thing. What's novel about Moses' prescription is to put a limit on retribution. So it used, in most of the world, if you take one of my teeth, I'll take six of yours. If you take one of my eyes, I'll take both of yours. And what Moses is doing is putting some kind of constraint on that passion for justice. It's saying, if you lost a tooth, you can take a tooth. If you lost an eye, you can take an eye. One for one, and this is supposed to minimize the impact of human justice. It's supposed to make it smaller because it was wrecking the world. Because if you're offended, you're willing to kill. So that's all that's happening with Moses. It's not really, 
I mean, I'm glad for it. It was the world was better with it, but it didn't change anything because there's no less evil in Moses's world. There's no less evil. But when Jesus comes, he says, okay, you all done that. Now we're going to do a new thing. The new thing is instead, when somebody takes your tooth, when somebody takes your eye, you're going to absorb that. And you're going to take that in and what you convert that to is going to be grace and love and kindness. And the church becomes a sponge to soak up the evil in the world. And it's not just a sponge, like it's not just take it. It's take it and convert it. And now what happens in the church, through the disciples, through the way that God trains us, is that we are like, like the way that plants use photosynthesis to change light into energy, the way they, they convert carbon dioxide and oxygen, the way this exchanges happen, the church is that in the world. We're taking in what's wrong and we're putting out what's right. And the net result of that is that we actually fix the world. And when the church loses sight of her teachings, when she can't hold a family together anymore, when she doesn't understand propositions of truth, when she loses non-resistance, it's not a net loss in our heads. It's a net loss in our ability to fix the world. And the more central and important that truth is, the more of that impact hurts the world. There's an old, there's an old saying from one of the early Christians. Was, I think it was Clement. He says, the church is to the world what the soul is to the body. It's one of my favorite quotes from the early church. And it's so, it's so powerful to me because uh, what he means by soul is something, I think, just reading my own, through my own lens, I think he means something like the conscience, what the conscience is to the body, what the internal person is to the person. And, and what that means is that what is, what is your body without a conscience? Your body without a conscience is a, I don't know what, a psychopath. Your body without a conscience is a monster. Your body without a conscience is like a wrecking ball running through the world. And that's what's happening. Why, why is there a corresponding, look, look I, I'm not doing this like, um, Christian America thing, like I don't, I'm, I'm not on that bandwagon. I don't do that. America's horrible. America's horrible like everywhere else is horrible. I don't mean particularly horrible, I just mean in all the ways that all civilizations are horrible. There's no like Christian America to appeal back to. There's no good old days. Show me the good old days. Was the good old days when we had slaves and we were building America on the backs of slaves stolen from their homeland? Was the good old days when they were mowing down the early union activists at the mines in the 1800s? Was the good old days the Civil War? Was the good old days the, the prohibition when dead bodies are laying on the streets? Was, what, where's the good old days? They wouldn't wear in Vietnam. There's no good old days. But what I am saying is that when the church is doing well, she has a healing and redemptive effect on the world around her. And since the church has died out, lost her convictions, become weak, become feckless, become ineffective, become cowed, become scared, become unable to speak, become dumb, become, you know, retreating into some field somewhere. Because the church has become all those things, the world is literally falling apart. The church has a salvific, redeeming effect in the world. It makes the world better. 
And that's not by controlling the levers of power. It's by changing lives and bearing some kind of testimony to what God's intentions for the world are. When I talk about the Christians, when I talk about the church as the new humanity, the society of Jesus, both of these are synonymous terms. And what it means is that God has a plan to show the world how things could be. It's us. And if, if hearing that makes you feel bad, like, oh, no. This is how we're supposed to be? This is God's plan? My church is how the world's supposed to work? If that's how you feel, you've got a lot of training to do. There's a lot of work to be done. Because that's what it's supposed to be. The disciples are the agents of the change that God wants to make in the world. And I'm worried that some people will think that, especially our more evangelically bent brethren, will think that what I mean is that the gospel doesn't have power or the spirit's not working. None of that's true. We're the ambassadors of those things. We're the bearers of those things. That's what we're bringing and producing in the world around us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the message that we bear. Apostle means the one who is sent. The, the implication is the one who is sent with a message. The message bearers. That's what the apostles were. And they're supposed to start churches, organizations, communities, institutions, that we're going to keep doing that thing, bearing the message. And, and this, this message bearing is as simple as that or as complicated as we could spend days and days and months and months and years and years studying. You know, you can break that message bearing into all kinds of components. The, the scriptures do themselves. That's what the... That's what the gifts, like what Ephesians, when it says that the apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, shepherds, so that we might come into the perfect man. That's the breaking down. Like, so here's the message. We're, we're the burden bearers, the message bearers to the world. We're bringing life and health through the gospel and the kingdom and expanding its borders and giving it more domain and more purchase and more place in the world. And as we do that, you can look at that task. And so what's your piece of that task? And what's your piece of that task? And what's your piece and your piece and your piece? They're not all the same. There's too many things to do for all of us to do the same thing. We need prophets and we need evangelists and we need teachers and we need shepherds we need all these things we need people with every disposition and every gift when the early church talks about the church they say it's flowed into every place every part of life every kind of person is all in the church within the first hundred years we need every disposition every gift every place and you have a part to play and i have a part to play and we have to collect these things so that we can be this engine of health and redeeming the world the Bible says, Paul said that you are ministers of reconciliation. What does that mean to be a minister of reconciliation? That's not a trite term. It's not religious talk. It means it's your job and my job to fix what's around us. Reconcile. Bring things back into square with what God intended it to be. And that's such a big job that there's room for all of us to do it. 
the, the little piece, the cell that you are in that body is essential and it has a job to do and it has a, a, a purpose to fulfill. Every joint supplies what's needed for the body. The disciples are the agents of change that God wants the world. You, you are the agent of change that God wants to do in the world. How are you training for that job? I mean, you're here. That's good. I'm glad for that. You took time out of your life to come up here and study for a week and you put whatever else on hold in your life and shelled out a few bucks and gave your attention and time. That's good. But what, what's your regular training regimen look like? What part of your life is being exercised in stretching and, and proving God and developing skills and advancing the kingdom? There's patterns in the Old Testament about, about ratios and proportions. One day out of seven, you're supposed to cease from your own work. The first fruits and percentages of the things that you have, one-seventh of your field is, the time of your field is supposed to lie dormant. There's these ratios and perspectives and and, and, and what happens, I, I don't know if you've been around like Judaizing and Hebrew roots and messianic and sacred name groups, but there's a real emphasis on those things and seeing what they are. And there's, there's some insights to be gained from people that look into those things, just like there are insights to be gained from Jewish rabbis and scribes from time past. But what, what, what often gets missed in the analysis, Hebrews tries to set the record straight. He says that um, in analyzing that, that issue of the Sabbath, he says the people that were given that thing, they didn't find that rest. He says there remaineth therefore a rest unto the people of God. And then he says, I, I love Paul, especially when he does things like Jesus. What I mean by that is like Jesus has this way of doing wordplay that's really like I don't know, it's, just, it's exquisite. I like words, and the way that Jesus plays with words is beautiful. Sometimes Paul does that same kind of pattern, and he does it right there in Hebrews. He says, he says, there remaineth therefore rest in the people of God. Then what's he say? Labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. That's, <laughs> it's funny, right? <laughs> it's a funny way to say it. Labor, work, to enter into the rest. Work to enter into the rest. Why am I talking about all that? There's something about those patterns that are laid out that do a couple of things. They, for one, they tell us things that matter. Like, 
where God sets up those ratios, where he prescribes those things, he's trying to tell us this is something that I care about. This is something I'm going to require. This is something I'm asking you to do. And so paying attention to what those things are is an important way of understanding what matters to God. That's a good use for the law, is to say, well, what is he requiring of the Jews? Those are things that God probably cares about in some form or another. What is this? What are these tithings and offerings and Sabbath? What do they mean for me and you? I, I don't. I don't observe a Saturday Sabbath. And the Sunday Sabbath is even worse. Like if you're going to do it, do it on the day that it was set. The Sunday is not a Sabbath. Sunday is the Lord's day. It's the day of, res- of the resurrection. It's not a Sabbath. Sabbath is an entirely different thing. Those are not, it didn't just get switched. Like God didn't just move the appointment on the calendar. That's not what Sunday is. But, but the Sabbath does matter. The Sabbath is something that was very important to God that he wanted to teach people to do. It's being referred to all over again in Hebrews. What is that rest? What, is it, what does it mean? What is he trying to do with those things? The, the New Testament prophecy says that um, in, in the place where it says, no more shall they say, let us go into Jerusalem and learn the ways of the Lord, for every man shall know me, and they shall worship me from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. That means it's like an ancient Semitic expression for 24-7. All day, every day, from new moon to new moon, without stopping, from Sabbath to Sabbath, without stopping, everything in between. This becomes their whole lives. Is it your life? Is discipleship your life? You're in this covenant that was being prophesied back there. When it said, okay, the temple's going to come to an end. The sacrifices are going to come to an end. There's going to be a whole new order on earth. Something's going to be entirely different about the world on the other side of this new covenant that's going to come, not according to the covenant of your fathers. There's a whole new order that's going to come to the world, and it's going to fully occupy the internal makeup of the people who are part of it. I will take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. I will write my laws, not on tablets, of stone but on their hearts and every man shall know me and these motivations are not external compulsions it's not a part of being in the nation it's not a part of identity that you look like and act like the people around you so that there's some kind of sense of commonality these things the disciple gets turned inside out not outside in And my question is then, for you and for me, not exempting myself, how are we training for that? Where is that that affecting us that we need to do something about it? How are we training to be disciples and to, to be ministers of reconciliation and to heal the world? Where are we following the patterns? Where, where are you in this? Are you, are you at the call phase? Is God, is Jesus out there saying, hey, come on. Do you notice when, when we looked at that passage, 
it seems like it doesn't. I'm going to give my subjective impression of that text. It seems like Jesus is walking down the beach and says, hey, come and follow me, and keeps going. I don't think that he stopped for a discussion at the boat. I don't think that he stops and is like, let's have a dialogue about what I mean by this and what the terms of the contractual agreement are going to be as you move forward with me off of dad's boat and into this new occupation. Come and follow me. And then he keeps going. I think that because that's how he deals with everybody else when he goes forward. My point is, you need to understand that the calm response is right now, right here. Are there things that he's calling you that you're not hearing, that you're not listening, that you're not moving? Don't trust that that call is going to remain. Now is the day of salvation. Are you in instruction? Are you learning from him? Are you paying attention? Are you, are you digging in? Are you studying to show yourself approved, a workman that needs not to be ashamed? Study is, study is a fine occupation. Like you, can, you can spend some time studying. It's okay. That's all right. Just do it. Do it well. Study to show yourself approved. You don't stay and study for your life, but there's a time when, it's, when you're like, hey, I, spent, I had a time of study in my early discipleship. I still study. I think you should always study. But there was a time, there was a phase in my early Christianity when I, when, when, when I said, okay, everything, everything that I had been taught was all these propositions of the church. And I looked at them, and they had been so ineffectual and so useless in my life, I wiped off the whole chalkboard, and I said, I don't know anything about Christianity. Everything I learned was wrong. I'm just going to assume the whole, the whole thing. I don't want nothing to do with what I was taught. I'm going to start from square one. Tell me, God, what's the Bible? What, what are you saying? What's Christianity? Who is Jesus? What did he say? What did he mean? How do I live? Wipe the slate clean. Let's start over. I need something that works. I need something that's real. And that's a period of study. And it's okay to be in a phase of instruction and to say, I don't know what's right. I don't know how this is supposed to work. I don't know what he said. I don't know what he means. I don't know how this is supposed to affect me. I gotta study. I gotta figure it out. I gotta hear him. I gotta sit while he talks. I gotta lean in and understand. That's okay. But you can't stay there. Then you gotta start seeing how things are working in the world. You gotta follow the model. And then you gotta start doing, acting, stretching, failing, practicing, working. I, I'm a little, I, I was talking with Finney and Charlton about how the week was going. And everybody's been very encouraged. And um, I told Finney, I said, I'm very glad that you have such a practical lesson because I've been kind of stuck in the ethereal. Like, I'm talking about a lot of ideas and principles, and I think it's important. I don't mind doing that. But I'm glad there's some practical application. I want to try to create some practical application here. I want to stop right here, right now, for three minutes. I'm going to set a timer. And I want you to think about the questions I've just asked. A, where are you at in this process? And B... What are a few places in your life where you need to train? I'd like you to write down at least 
two or three things in your life that you feel like you need to train for the kingdom, for your work, for what God's asking you to do. So where are you at in this process? And what are the things you need to train in your life? Do you need to know the scriptures better? Do you need boldness? Do you need to understand the gospel better? Do you need more spiritual disciplines in your life? Do you need to learn how to fast? Do you need to know how to pray? What are the places in your life that you need to train so that you can be effective for the gospel? I'm going to set a timer. We're going to practice silence. Silence is a hard thing to practice, especially for me. Three minutes, we're just going to be quiet and think about these things. So take your time. hope that you, um, in that short amount of time, I hope that a few things emerged that will give you some, a place to begin, right? That's, I would say that one of the, one of the marks of a successful disciple, uh, it's, it's what I was trying to lay out with Peter yesterday. I want to give you like some freedom to move. It almost doesn't matter what you do. What I mean by that is don't the whole message yesterday about not being afraid to fail. It means just start doing things. The, the, there's not a there's 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 not a definite like you have to do this, then that. You have to do it this way. You have to say these things. Those, those things don't work. Anybody that tries to tell you that stuff, the world is far too dynamic and people are far too individual and far too complex. These, like, these repeat after me kind of versions of either living a good Christian life or sharing the gospel or whatever, those, those, what, what God's trying to teach us is patterns to follow not prescriptions. And, and, and why I'm saying all that is that I don't, I don't know what you wrote down. I don't know what, what the areas in your life that you feel like you could start working forward in training with God, like get into a training regimen. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you wrote down. What matters is that you wrote something down and that you're going to do something with it. That's what matters. Because you might get a month from here and you're really leaning into this stuff and God show you, that's not at all what I need you working on. I need you working on this. The point is to work. The point is to keep putting one foot in front of another. That's the point of training. I don't care what kind of training you go to. They'll tell you, you just have to keep moving forward. And that's what I'm trying to get out of us. That's the practical effect I want out of these sessions is that you feel emboldened and, and, and capable and, um, and excited to just start moving forward as disciples. In any of those things you wrote down, working forward is what creates the growth. I want to look at this. Oh, man. I want to look at this, um, what happens here. 
at verse 10 in chapter 9, and the apostles, when they were returned, told him that they, all that they had done, and he took them and went aside privately into a desert place, the wilderness, belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Okay, so like we've been out in the middle of doing all this stuff and work, 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 and all these people around, all this stuff going on, and Jesus is like, hey guys, that's great. Let's go away and have a little retreat, just you and me. And I can imagine what a, what a blessing that would be. I mean, wouldn't you like that? Like, your, your, your master, he's, you can go out and do the stuff you're supposed to do. He says, hey, do this. It's really hard. And you learn these lessons and all these things happen. He comes back and you tell him what you did. And he's like, that's great, boys. Come on, let's go. Let's go. Just you and, you and me. Let's hang out for a little while. Let's have some quiet. Let's have some rest. Enough work for the time. Let's just... Let's have a vacation. You know, spend some time together. Reconnect. That's beautiful. It's really kind of Jesus to do that. And the people, when they knew it, followed him. And he received them. And I got to imagine, if I was Matthew in that scenario, I'd be like, what happened to our vacation, man? I thought, we were, I thought it was just going to be you and us. I got questions. There's things I got to figure out. Like there's so many things to unpack. And, and I just wanted to spend some time together. But this crowd, there they go. And the crowd sees them. And they're like, hey, 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 wait, 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 wait. And all these people come. And Jesus receives them. And that had to be disappointing. So that's where the stage gets set. He received them and spoke unto them of the kingdom of God and healed them that had need of healing. He's still modeling for people watching. And when the day began to wear away, then came the twelve and said unto him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the towns and the country roundabout and lodge and get victuals, for we are here in a desert place. And I, 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 that sounds very nice and compassionate of the disciples to, to say that, but because of the way that this chapter begins, I think what they mean is like, okay, enough already. Can it just be us? Like, this has been a departure. This has been a little detour from our vacay with Jesus. Like, we wanted to hang out. Like, Jesus, okay, enough. Like, we lost a whole day here. Can you send them away so that we can get back to what we were trying to do? They need food. Like, here's a good reason, Jesus. Like, I know that you, you, you almost can't say no, and you always heal these people when they come. But, like, we don't have any food. It's not just me. I mean, I would love to go hang out, but it's not just me. We don't have any food. He said to them, give ye them to eat. He's making these people their problem. And they don't want those people to be their problem. They have another agenda. And I feel this Many, many times in my life, I don't want those people to be my problem. I've got other things I want to do, really spiritual things, really important things to me. And here they are. I don't want those people to be my problem. And Jesus says, you feed them. 
I don't even have food. <laughs> what do you mean feed them? When we start churches, um, one of the things that I talk about, I'm so going to bust my time. One of the things that we talk about, I can't, David's coming. One of the things that we talk about is like, uh, what, what people want to know, and I don't blame them, especially with families and everything else, is how is this going to work? And I will say that um, particularly people from Anabaptist persuasions, when they come into embracing a different way of doing ecclesiology and church life, it's like, how is this going to work? Where's what I need to know. I have, I have 17 potentials that could happen over the next seven years and if I don't know how we're going to answer those 17 potential issues then I'm afraid to get involved with this and very often I'm asked questions when we do when we do church planting work or when we're working with a new group of people I'm very often asked questions that I have to very honestly say they say what's going to happen if this and I say I don't know What's going to happen when this happens? I don't know. What happens when, well, okay, okay, so you don't know here, but in Boston, what, hap, what, what do you guys do when this happens? And I have to say, that hasn't happened. I don't, have, I don't have a solution for things that haven't happened. Many, many times, I don't know. It's not how I work. I, we do what's in front of us. And when a new problem happens, we find a new solution. And that's hard for some people to do. And they feel like there's a, they feel like, and, and, and if you come from one of those environments, you might feel like too, just in your regular life, they feel like there's a secret playbook somewhere in a locked room that they can't see, <laughs> that other people have access to that they don't. And they're like, hey, br break out the code book. I want to know. And you're like, it's not there. Look around. It's not there. There's no code book. You, you just have to you just have to bear with the responsibility. It's I think that the, the, the gospel is a good case study for this. How are you supposed to make disciples? I just told you that you're the agent of change for God to fix the world. You're a part of the process that God's going to use to redeem the world to himself. And that feels like feeding a few thousand people with no food. Well, how am I supposed to do that? I don't, I don't know how to do that. I don't, have, I don't have the provisions to do that. I don't have the wisdom to do that. I don't know how many people are here. But I, I, I've done these, we've had a few of these Bible schools. One of the biggest parts is just trying to organize food. Just bringing food to feed people one meal a day for what, 50, 100 people? This is a few thousand people in the middle of the desert with no preparation and no provision and no refrigeration and no transportation and no nothing. Like, put yourself in these shoes. You feed them. What? That's crazy talk, Jesus. You feed them. What are you talking about? I've felt that. I've been in this disciple's place so many times in my life. What do you mean? I don't know how to do that. I don't have any, I don't have any idea how that's supposed to work.
And they said, we have no more but five loaves and two fishes. Except we should go and buy meat for all this people. For they were about 5,000 men. That is a lot of people. And he said to his disciples, make them sit down by fifties in a company. And how stupid do you feel like when you got five loaves and two fishes organizing 5,000, 7,000 people into groups of 50 with no food? Like, how do you even start that task? Like those 12 walk out from Jesus and like, okay, everybody, we're going to have lunch now. I want all of you to... Okay, there's 50, count off. One, two, three, four, count off. Okay, now there's a group of 50, and I don't know how long it takes to organize five to 7,000 people into groups of 50, but wandering through the crowds, come on, Billy, would you just sit down over there? You're in that group. Okay, you guys, okay, there's another group of 50, and they do all this organizing, sit people down in groups of 50 with nothing to do with them. And they did so, and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke and gave the disciples to set before the multitude. And they did eat and were all filled. And there was taken up a fragments that remained to them, 12 baskets. And in the other telling of the miracle of the loaves and fishes, it says that they're in the boat afterwards, and they neglected the miracle of the loaves and the fishes and every time I've read that I'm like what in the world how are they in that situation where a couple of fish and a couple of loaves of bread feed thousands of people and they didn't remember they didn't take note of the miracle of the loaves and the fishes and the reason is that they were just running they were just working they were just running around in a giant mass of people and they didn't know where it was coming from. They, hadn't even, they didn't even have the time to pay attention to where this was coming from. They had gone out and they had set up all these 50s. And by the time you came back from this part of the crowd, and you came back from that part of the crowd, you came back up to the center, and there's a bunch of fish and bread. And you're like, okay. So you start taking them out. And by the time you pass that out, you come back up and there's more. And you say, okay. And you take that up. And they're just running everywhere. And they don't know where it came from. And by the time they're so wore out, okay, and so here's the deal, right? Like, okay, after all that, after starting, we have no food. And they're like, where did Jesus get this stuff from? We got nothing but a few loaves and a few fishes. We've been feeding people all day, all evening. And now you come back up and everybody's finally fed. Where did all this come from? There's so much left over. It's not, it's, it's not an accident that there was 12 baskets. Each one of those guys who stood with Jesus and said, we have no food, had to carry out of the wilderness a basket full of food on his back. <laughs> it's silly. And you can imagine, and I'm sure it was Peter, walking down, back down the road, being like, I can't believe I'm going to carry a basket of food out of here. And by the time they get in the boat, they're so tired and so worn out and so distracted and so fed up with everything. They're just like, I don't, what, what miracle? All I've been doing is working. There's a positive and a negative lesson to learn from that. On the one hand, it's good to work. Like, 
Work creates the provision. Getting involved, starting from scarcity and just believing, like going out and setting those people down in groups of 50 and saying, I don't know where it's coming from, but it's coming. Jesus told us, so we're just going to do what he said. You can do that with a lot of stuff. Jesus told us, so we're just going to obey. He said to love your enemies. I don't know how that's going to work. How, 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 I've had, I, I have spent literally hours talking about hypotheticals associated with non-resistance. Hours of my life have been consumed with that. And sometimes I don't know. I don't know. I just know he told me to love my enemies. What about this and what about that and what about this and what about that? I mean, I can, I, I can, I'm happy to guess, but some of this stuff, I'm just going to do what he said. What about when they break in your house and you're, they've got your three-year-old in the headlock and you're like, I don't know. I'm just going to, but I'm going to start by saying, Jesus told me to love my enemies. I'm going to do that. Scarcity creates faith and then God works and you end up carrying out more than you even knew was there. I think that I, I would use it as a part of the, the description of the disciple, this, this capacity to do this thing, to not know where it's coming from and by faith to act without knowing the outcome. It's what, that's what Jesus is training us to do. He's teaching us to start from a place where we don't know how it's going to work. In that, that applies to, to doctrine and teaching. It applies to how we live our lives. It applies to how we're going to deal with problems in the future, how we're going to be the church, how we're going to make disciples. We start from this place of scarcity, poor in spirit, poor in spirit, scarcity, and we activate our lives with faith. We trust that, we trust that Jesus is going to do what he told us to do, and then he works. And this is a central pattern for the life of a disciple. So many things are tied to that exact pattern. When you, when, you learn to, when you learn to see this, when it happens over and over again, you start to see this pattern play out. And you start to associate the, the successes and the good things in your life to having been faithful in this pattern. You can, you can develop a perspective where when there is scarcity along with what God has told you to do, you begin to see this as opportunity. You begin to get excited. This is what Paul is saying about the thorn in his flesh or his difficulties or his own persecutions. He sees in those inabilities, in those weaknesses, in those difficulties in his life, he sees the opportunity for God to work. And as, and as a maturing disciple, the scarcity, the difficulty, the weakness... The problem is not a bad thing. It becomes the aha moment God's going to do something. I have other things that we could talk about there, but we're, we're at our time. I, um, I hope that you can spend a little bit of time, uh, if, not, if not today, uh, this weekend, meditating on those issues that you wrote down. To make, don't just have a list in your notebook that sits in a, in a closet for the next six months. 
if, if that's something that's really, don't do it for me, but if there's something on that list that you know that God wants you to give an attention to, don't, don't let that sit somewhere. Put it, put it in your heart, not just on your paper, and do something about it. Get involved in trying to figure out what God wants to do to train you to be better in those places that you know you're weak. All right, thank you.